0: Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, Microsoft leaks their golden key, allowing attackers to unlock secure boot systems, Oracle suffers a security compromise that puts hundreds of their customers at risk, and there's a super embarrassing networking bug in Linux. Plus, it's your great questions, our answers, a packed roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 280 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on August 11th, 2016. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors DigitalOcean, Ting, and ix systems i'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on oh our live stream it's powered by the quite amazing scale engine over at scaleengine.com you should go check that out my name is chris and joining us every single week for 280 weeks it's our host the ab and the tech and the teacher mr alan jude hello alan Hello, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Ooh, rocking the TechSnap swag shirt. Very nice, sir. Mm-hmm. Looking good. Mm-hmm. I like it. I, uh, I I should bust mine out, too, because I've got the T-shirts and it's getting warm outside. Alan, we yeah, are...
1: You're, you're wearing two shirts. It's, it's far too warm for that.
0: I know. Well, it's because I'm supposed to be here in this uh, fancy uh, outdoor uh, cabin, you see, Alan. <laughs> right, but <laughs> in a sunroom like that, there's like I no you're you right. I should be. I should be wearing a tank top, off. but yeah. <laughs> got me. All right. So there's a bit of a virtual disconnect there. It's new in VR. It's still hard. Uh, But I'll tell you what wasn't hard. The news this week. There was a ton of good juicy stuff for this show for us to pick through. Uh, And it it is almost a tech snap staple to have a good solid Oracle story. So uh, Krebs on security delivers with our first one. Are you ready to jump in? Yes. All right. Let's do it.
1: Yeah, so there's uh, been a security breach at Oracle, uh, particularly their Micros division, which is a company they bought in 2014 that makes point-of-sales terminals. They say a Russian-organized cybercrime group, the Carbonac one. Do you remember those guys from... Oh, that doesn't ring a bell. Carbonac? Uh, yeah, they, they rob Russian banks and stuff. Oh, oh, yeah, okay. Highly sophisticated malware people. Uh, they've been known for hacking into banks and retailers and appear to have uh, breached hundreds of computer systems at Oracle. Hmm. They, uh, more alarmingly, the attackers have compromised a customer support portal for companies using Oracle's micros point of sales credit card. Oh, uh, asked this week for comments on rumors of a large data breach potentially affecting customers of its retail division. Oracle acknowledged that it has detected and addressed malicious code in certain legacy micros systems. So it is that
0: awesome. is that uh, is that is that like code for old firmware-based like hardware? Not.
1: Uh, no, I think it just means uh, stuff. Computer systems we inherited from the company when we bought them. Technical debt type stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, and that stuff always gets even worse during an acquisition because you're rearranging all the people and things are changing and you're laying off half the people or whatever, and then you have all these systems that worked fine at the other company. But they're part of Oracle now. It's like, well, we'll just kind of leave them and we'll transition everything over to doing it the Oracle way.
0: Yeah, I've seen that but a lot. All these
1: ones they're not getting managed properly anymore. Mm-hmm. They're not the production necessarily. And anymore. you know,
0: uh, mergers and acquisitions are extremely, extremely common. They're just they're just common business place in like banks and and I have a lot of hands on experience with merging or essentially doing what you just said. And that is, well, we just merged with this new bank and that system works. So we're just going to leave that for a while, but we'll eventually transition that to, this, to the unified platform, and then you just yeah. never get around to it, or it takes or too even long. If you,
1: do, you always have to keep it running because there's just, like, two really old customers that aren't going to upgrade. And... Or
0: you end up adding like legacy codes uh, that match up the other system's codes, and you have to make special yeah. modifications to your database to accommodate it and all that stuff. It's horrible. It really is horrible. <laughs> so you can see how it's ripe for the pickings.
1: Yeah, and this is... Um... It was also said that it is asking all Micros customers to reset their passwords for the online support portal. Uh, Oracle's Micros division uh, sells point-of-sale systems used in more than 330,000 cash register systems worldwide. Uh, When Oracle bought Micros in 2014, the company said Micros' systems were deployed to 200,000 food and beverage outlets, so, you know, fast food restaurants and so on, 100,000 retail stores, and 30,000 hotels.
0: Oh, that's a pretty good deployment.
1: Yep. Uh, a source breached on the investigation says the breach likely started with a single infected system inside of Oracle's network that was then used to compromise additional systems. <laughs> so you basically had island hop, you get yeah, in there, exactly. get one system, and yeah. then spread out. Yeah. Uh, in the Krebs report, <clears throat> there's talk of possibly like 700 computers at Oracle being compromised in the end. <laughs> That's so embarrassing for an enterprise grade company. That is, yeah, yikes, but. That is a small number considering how many computers Oracle has. So Okay. You know, All right. I'll give you that. You know. I will give you that. Uh, so you can see, yes, they were downplaying it, but – and, you know, it's hard to say actually how bad it was yet. Yeah. Um, uh, Those sources further stated that the intruders uh, placed malicious code on the micro support panel and that the malware allowed the attackers to steal other micros customers' usernames and passwords when the customers logged into their web panel. Mm -hmm. It's unclear whether they just injected something or if they're actually able to change the source code for the web panel that the users log into and make it, you know, send email off a copy of the passwords or something. Mm -hmm. It's, It's not clear exactly how it worked, but it... It could have been really bad. Mm-hmm. It's uh, not clear exactly how bad it was yet, but uh, it's it's possible that it was. You know, they completely owned the platform and changed whatever they wanted. <laughs> um, this breach could be a uh, little more than a nasty malware outbreak at Oracle. However, the uh, Carbonac, uh gang is apparent you know, its involvement in this uh, makes it unlikely the attacker somehow failed to grasp the enormity of the access and power uh, that they have when they gain control of the micro support panel. Um, so it's likely this was a lot more than just a little bit of malware getting in because of the people behind it. Uh, I don't know if you showed that graphic of the uh, the logos of the companies involved. There's uh, lots of big ones in there because you made a little bit.
0: Yeah, I see IKEA, uh, let's see. iHop, Sonic, Ruby Tuesday, Starbucks, Burger King. Yeah, so a lot of point of sales there, of course. Yep. Adidas.: Cafe. Samsonite Online. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. Yikes. Travel yep. Lodge. Yeah, so a couple of of, yeah, oh yeah, of course the Hilton, Marietta, a a bunch of uh, a bunch
1: of hotels. These are big hotels. That's huge. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Yes, and uh, these are not U.S. only. Obviously, Uh, you know, Oracle's enterprise software is basically everywhere. Uh, This is
0: TGI Fridays. They've gone too far. (laughs) Uh, Best Jerry's.
1: uh, uh, One of the. People Krebs asked about this, said this incident could explain a lot of the sources of some of those retail and merchant point-of-sales hacks that hmm. nobody has been able to de- definitively tie to any one point-of-sales service provider.
0: That's an interesting and bit they, of speculation. There's
1: a big so, chance that the hackers in this case found a way to get remote access. So uh, one of the interesting things is one of the things this micros, uh customer support panel does is allow the customer to ask uh, for help and have Oracle remote control into their point-of-sales terminal and fix things. So, if the attackers managed to gain the ability to do that, they could have gone uh, into specific uh, control uh, um, point of sales terminals and compromised them. Yeah, so they could Oracle have ta- they could attack.
0: have been more selectively
1: targeted. Oh well, they basically could have managed to get access to terminals that were quite secure, just because they went in through the official way that Oracle is supposed to go in.
0: So it looked legit. Yeah. Okay, I got gotcha. you. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, so. There's some speculation that some of the other um, compromises we've seen recently that haven't been able to be explained could be related to this. It's not clear whether that's the case yet, but that's the speculation. Okay. Um, it's also not clear if, if uh, the breach at Oracle may have resulted in the attackers being able to remotely control remote micros terminals. Um, according to the comments uh, further down in the Krebs article from just people that are on the website uh, some of which are work at places where they actually use this software. Um, the actual credit card processing is done on the pin pad unit that's separately attached to the point of sale, like the cash register. So the Oracle software runs on the cash register and then it just sends like the amount to the pin pad, which does the credit card processing and just sends back, yes, the user paid or whatever. Uh, and then the cash register, you know, opens the drawer and gives you a change or whatever kind of thing. um, And so it's possible that this attack didn't actually give them access to the credit cards uh, because the point-of-sales software is running the cash register and it just has – that's kind of a limited interaction with the pin pad that's actually taking your credit card. Okay. Okay. Um, but, and then uh, there's a follow up story that's happened uh, since this article from Krebs came out. They say After an investigative reporter Brian Krebs reported on the compromise of Oracle's micros unit earlier this week, it now appears that the same allegedly Russian cybercrime gang has hit five others in the last month, including CN7, ECRS, Navy Zebra, and Par, uh, Par Technologies in Uniwell, which are also uh, payment terminal software makers Uh, together they supply as many as if not more than 1 million point of sales systems globally Uh, so it seems like this could have been a a more determined concentrated attack rather than just going after Oracle specifically they were going after all the payment terminals Mm -hmm. they could get
0: in fact you really have to wonder how much of an Oracle product it was
1: right because this was an acquisition they made only like two years ago so it probably maybe wasn't all that Oracleized.
0: yeah For better or for worse. I mean, apparently, yeah. maybe they might, they mean, but also that, that process is probably an extremely vulnerable time for a piece of software like that because yep. that, hi there, that transition has got to be a really tumultuous time inside the company. So yep. it's got to cause delays and, okay. and updates and whatnot.
1: Uh, hmm. And, you know, the other thing is, you know, uh, it seems like there's nobody that does a good job in this space. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the bigger problem is that. Uh, as we've seen uh, with um, what's the name of the company now? Uh, Xenuist that makes um, the SCO-based cash registers they use at like McDonald's. Yeah. Uh, But McDonald's only wants to refresh their cash registers every like 15 or 20 years. Right? So think about trying to design a computer system that's going to last that long.
0: Yeah, I I don't know if that's possible anymore because there's so much software now involved and there's so much uh, external connectivity. I mean... uh, Back when yes. it was just a cash register you're, with you're a...
1: implementing SSL to talk to the bank probably at some point, or even just to talk to a central reporting server inside the McDonald's or whatever. So, yeah.
0: I feel like they have to come to a different understanding. Yeah. But, but the problem is, is these yeah. things, in some, in some cases, are more expensive than the tr- than the older ones that could have lasted 15 years ago. I mean, 15 yeah. years ago, it was essentially a firmware with a, with a real minimal uh, calculator built in, and it, you know, it kicked out a cash register. Then they upgraded to these really clunky touchscreen buttons that, again, were some custom firmware that ran over like a serial network. And now we're going to full-fledged TCP-based uh, embedded Android devices with touch payment and... Uh, animation and and I don't know how often you go to like, McDonald's but they have like animation screens on the front of them now with ads and whatnot and all of it and the, and yeah, the whole it, boards
1: it, it, and it needs to be upgradeable to support Apple Pay and Google Wallet and whatever Samsung decides to do and
0: this is a bad situation we're going into because these things are so vulnerable and they're so expensive and you're right these companies have a mindset of a you know at least like a 5-10 like a year refresh cycle at best in most cases yep but it's just when you put that well, much software on something like that, it's just not realistic.
1: Yeah. And so the, cash re- the people that make the software, the cash register, they only get paid once basically usually uh, when they sell them. And so they're, it's all about you know, getting the minimum viable product out and, and selling it rather than you know, making something secure that's going to last for that long. They don't care about that. They just want Or they're so-
0: going for huge fat. yearly maintenance contracts in particular
1: like when we talked about the actual point of sales terminals back when they were like you know a a custom real-time os is like super minimal with like you know a 30 megahertz processor or whatever they hired somebody to write it uh they wrote it in six months or whatever and then you know they didn't build new software until five years later Mm -hmm. and now they're having to try to almost have a staff and keep it going all the time and that's a lot more expensive and they're trying to cheap out on it and yeah i don't know uh Hmm. But you know, as a for superstar type programmers, I don't think these problems are interesting enough to want to work on it for a long time.
0: No. Yeah, it's a particularly interesting challenge because it actually is. It's like there's some human psychology involved. There's business dynamics that you could argue are completely reasonable, uh, and then there's the technological d- development pace, which uh, is sort of hard for everybody to wrap their head around. Yeah, and- like-
1: you yeah, we can see how much resistance there is, especially in smaller mom and pop type businesses to replace the credit card terminals with ones that could do chip and pin. But now it's like, oh, turns out the software on all the chip and pin ones is bad and we need to replace them again. And they're going to be like, really? You, you just made me do this and you want me to do it again and again mm-hmm. and again? It almost does
0: make the argument for a generalized computing platform that just has the capability of payment processing like... Uh, mm-hmm. an android or iphone device with with a with a square, square pl- yeah because the at least you it's can have like right either but yeah. yeah but at least you can have vendor updates to the platform that the software runs on and square has a straightforward direct delivery model to get updates to their clients at the app store uh and it seems right. to be working but, you
1: know you could build something with a touchscreen and a raspberry pi or something too yep. it's just a matter yep. of you have to design the software with the built-in security update. Maybe,
0: Alan, maybe legitimately somebody will do something like that and they will come up with a sustainable update model where they will keep things secure and push out updates for a set amount of years and they will become uh, a leader in the market. And maybe it'll start sort of out at the mom and pop level like Square has and, and take off when somebody can go get a $99 point of sale device that gets guaranteed five years of updates or something like that.
1: Well, yeah, but that's you couldn't hire enough programmers at that sale price. It's yeah. a problem. And the other thing is, the, the bank or whatever that sells you take your credit card processing, no. <laughs> uh, the bank or whatever that sells you the, uh, your credit card processing has bundled with somebody. Yeah. And it's like, oh, we'll give you this terminal for right. free yeah. right. uh, yeah. because yeah. we'll make the yeah. money back off the 1.9% off every yeah. transaction.
0: Yeah, and you can imagine what incentive there is to take care of that free product, but you're absolutely yeah. right.
1: Especially from a bank. Mm-hmm. Well, because the bank doesn't make the product. They just bundled somebody else's product.
0: So what you're really saying is Bitcoin. <laughs> no, it's, hey, you'd have
1: to, to convince a big enough payment processor to actually pay for and distribute your terminals instead of
0: Yeah, that would be where you'd have to make the deal, you're right mm-hmm. Alright, any other thoughts
1: on that story? <clears throat> uh no, that's put it for that one
0: You know what it really tells me? It tells me that you have to be clear-headed about how you invest in your infrastructure That's the critical decision That's why I want to mention ixsystems.com slash techsnap ixsystems.com slash techsnap Go there to support the show and learn more about iX systems. They have a white paper there. You can download that. That's probably great for people in your business that aren't familiar with iX because have, they haven't been listening to TechSnap, which is their first mistake. Uh, yes. But take a look at iX for all of your different workloads. In fact, just to get an idea of some of the things that they are seriously, su- uh, areas of they are su- super successful in is look at their solutions drop down on their website, where they talk about big data and cloud development machines, education, finance, government, healthcare, high-tech, manufacturing, media, entertainment, and virtualization they can build enterprise grade systems built around those intel processors to handle all of it you call them they'll walk you through it they'll make sure you buy the right thing they have it
1: that's the big thing is that instead of buying a server like you do when you go to some other hardware company and be like all right i need a server and it's like well we have these four models which one do you want Mm -hmm. uh ix is you tell them what problem you're trying to solve and they custom design the server to have the right components to to end up being the solution to your problem, mm-hmm. right? It's like I'm going to use this for video editing. So I need uh, at least this much RAM, I need fast scratch storage for while I'm editing, and then I need uh, a good bulk storage for keeping the videos after I'm done, like maybe even the raw footage which is really large, uh but maybe compresses fairly well, uh but and I need it to be redundant enough that even if two of my hard drives die, I'm still good. Mm-hmm. Um definitely. Or, you know, this is going in a remote place where it's going to be hard to swap out failed hard drives. Uh So I need to put in like hot spares and and do triple redundancy. Yeah. Or, you know, this is... It is is
0: really nice to be able to uh, speak to somebody who's super sharp and knowledgeable about the different possibilities and then tell them what your work case is and have a actual working relationship that really does solve the problem. And it's not a waste of your time. And it starts there and the entire process feels like that. Uh, That's what I think is, you know, sort of the big game changer for me, With IX was when I bought my first device, I experienced that process firsthand and then it clicked. Oh, this is where that's where you start to notice the difference. And it's at every step ixsystems.com/slash-techsnap. Go check them out. They even have the FreeNAS rigs, which are the XL and the FreeNAS Mini. They have. Are those the Atom processors still? The yes, Intel those are the Server Atom, Atom.
1: Server Atom. Yep. which
0: is super slick because then the power footprint of that uh, device is super reasonable, but the capabilities are pretty advanced. I hear from people all the time in the audience. They're setting up free NAS with plugins to manage for their home office, for their work, and for home. And they have things like Plex and MB, but also sync software and backup software that you can plug right in and get working. It's all protected and it puts them in jails. It's pretty fancy. And, uh, but then, when you're ready to graduate, they have systems that'll scale up from there. Also, take a look at if you are in the if you're in the realm of building virtualization, take a look at their virtualization page. They have some serious offerings here. They're VMware ready on some of their products, uh, Citrix certified, and uh, Windows Server 2003.
1: Yeah, so that's 2012. Uh, I'm sorry, R2 certified. Yeah, VMware obviously for uh, ESX and so yeah, on, which is uh, big. The Citrix one is for Zen. And the Microsoft one is for Hyper-V. Yeah, and it's they've spent a lot of time optimizing all the configuration and, and all the setup, and even just sponsoring work in FreeBSD to make the features faster. So that when you need a big storage server to store all your VMs on while they're executing on other nodes, you can do that. Like they sponsored all the work so that uh, when you're in VMware or Hyper-V and you do the clone command of a disk, yeah. it doesn't normally when you're doing that over like iSCSI or NFS. The virtual, the the hypervisor has to actually copy the files over the network to itself and then write them back to the storage. Right? Mm -hmm. But with this, they could say, hey, down in the ZFS side, right on the storage server, make me a clone of this. Mm. And it's done. They sponsored or, you know, that work? right? Yeah, they sponsored that work, and it went into FreeBSD. That's and, big
0: picture stuff. I love you know,
1: that. that they ha- would have those features for, and get the certifications from Microsoft and, wow. and VMware.
0: Talk about a real investment. Check them out, guys. iXsystems.com slash TechSnap to support this show, and then dig around and contact them. If you do talk to them, let them know the TechSnap show sent you. Say hi for us. Mm-hmm. iXsystems.com slash TechSnap. All right, so the next story I think is probably the one the chat room has been buzzing about all day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, I think it's a, it's a flaw in, I think it's what version three dot six of the Linux kernel. But fill me in, yep. Alan. What's going
1: on? So uh, there's a f- flaw in the TCP stack in Linux three dot six and newer. Ah, okay, so okay, all okay. the way up to four dot seven and
0: Ooh, kernel party, everybody. So just about damn near everybody running any semi modern version of Linux.
1: Well, what's interesting here is a lot of embedded Linux devices won't be affected because uh, they're still <laughs> running an old two six hey Uh And you know, I think uh CentOS might not be affected because it's 3.2, right? Mm, maybe. I think. I forget what CentOS is. I can't CentOS. I don't versions. know. I just, uh, I barely and, CentOS. Uh, the version of Linux built into Windows, although that doesn't have a kernel, so it probably it wouldn't be affected anyway. But anyway, uh, at the 25th Usenix Security Symposium, which is, uh, was yesterday, uh, or well, that would be uh, August 10th in real time because this show is all time travel, Uh, researchers from the University of California at Riverside and the U.S. Army Research Laboratory will demonstrate a proof-of-concept exploit that allowed them to inject content into an otherwise legitimate uh, USA Today page uh, that asked viewers to enter their email address and password.
0: Ah, so that's why I've been seeing the headlines about USA Today.
1: Yeah, it was just the random website they picked as their demo. Okay. And basically, with this, they would have a regular computer connecting to the website, They don't have to be man-in-the-middle. They can just be sitting off over at the side on their regular internet connection. And with some brute forcing and luck and and this attack, they could change the page that would come back from uh, from USA Today so that you got a different news page or the same original news page with some extra JavaScript injected into it. Mm, Perfect. Uh, computer scientists have discovered a serious internet vulnerability that allows attackers to terminate connections between virtually any two parties. And if connections aren't encrypted, inject malicious code or content into the party's communications. So, uh, after the show, everybody running Linux to connect to IRC is going to get disconnected. <laughs> <laughs> really? Nice. <laughs> yeah. I, I could do that if yeah, I yeah, know, mou-ha-ha. Mou-ha-ha. yeah. So in the paper, they have a diagram that kind of explains it. But, uh, the vulnerability resides in the design and implementation of the new RFC 5961, which is a new internet standard that was intended, get this, to prevent certain classes of hacking attacks. Oh, jeez. It's like, let's extend TCP IP to make it immune to certain types of attacks. Turns out it actually makes certain, this other kind of attack more plausible.
0: I can't help but just scoff I can't
1: in order to prevent a denial of service attack, this new feature has a global rate limit on the number of these acknowledgement uh, acts that it would send or, uh, that it would send back, right so in order to stop me from being able to flood a server and make it send a whole bunch of responses uh, and and flood its internet connection okay yeah. it's a rate limit it however, uh, the issue is an attacker can now exploit this by eliciting enough responses to hit that limit so that when users try to connect, they won't get a valid response. And then I can send them as the attacker can send them <laughs> a response and they'll get that one instead. wow. I gotcha. And then you can pretend to be the server and then you can shut down the connection between the user and server or inject content. Hmm. Say attackers can go on to exp- uh, exploit the flaw to shut down the connection inject-, uh, inject malicious code or content into unencrypted data streams. So obviously HTTPS will protect you from that. Uh, and possibly degrade privacy guarantees provided by the Tor network. Uh, In particular, uh, I'll I'll explain the Tor bit in a minute. The the flawed code was introduced into the Linux operating system kernel starting with version 3.6, which was 2012. Um, And it was uh, added a largely complete set of functions implementing the standard uh, for that RFC we mentioned. Uh, Linux kernel maintainers released a fix uh, with version 4.7 about three weeks ago. But the patch has not yet been applied to most mainstream distributions, so a lot of them were still vulnerable Mm. as of this report. Uh, For the attack to work, only one of the two targeted parties has to be vulnerable. So even if you're on a Mac or something that's not vulnerable, if the website is Linux, I can attack it, or the other way around. Even if the other side is already patched, if your desktop isn't patched and running Linux, I could do this.
0: Okay. Uh, So this is one of these problems... It seems to crop up from Linux from time to time, and then we sit here and we play this wait game while all the different fork, I mean, distros of Linux, finally get their patches out. And so you're telling me, as of this recording right now, that's
1: not all of them have. I don't know exactly how many.
0: This seems pretty uh, okay. That's super frustrating.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, what's interesting is I think when it was when the release was uh, when the fix was released three weeks ago, I don't know that it was clear that it was a security. Update that everybody should apply. I'm not, it, it, the way it's worded is a little odd. Okay, I got gotcha. you.
0: Yeah, um, I'll look into it a little more. There's there's a workaround you can do in the
1: meantime. Uh, there's a sysctl that you set to just an impossibly large number, uh, and it sets the rate limit really high, and then the attacker isn't going to be able to reach the rate limit, and then you'll always send the valid packets, and it's it it will help mitigate the problem in the meantime. Uh, so that's uh, in the uh, Show notes or in the links to, in the show notes so yeah that and that
0: paper you mentioned too with the diagrams also linked in the show notes
1: yes uh, what makes this attack especially bad is that the attacker doesn't need to be man in the middle to manipulate the connection it works as uh, so called off path so I'm just standing over here on my regular internet connection with no special setup and I just know the IP addresses of the website the server and the client uh and I can just. You know, I guess was wondering I know about server, that. the server, the port number is always going to be like 80, right? So then I just have to brute force maybe send packets for every possible port number back to the client until I find the right one. And I just inject the reset packets and uh, close your connections.
0: So, okay. So I'm sorry to be dumb here. But so uh, uh, just to make it a little clear, I don't – I can do a man-in-the-middle attack without being in the middle – because yeah. it, once I know the IP address and I know the ports of the well, both. So
1: normally in a TCP connection, uh, when you first set it up, there's a three-way handshake. Yeah. And the main reason for this is to prevent IP spoofing, right? Because when we have UDP, I can send a packet with anybody's IP address, and when you get it, you, it says it's from this guy, so you think it is, yeah, right? Yeah, okay, yeah. Whereas with TCP, if I send a spoofed one... You send a reply back to that IP address, and obviously me as the spoofer do- doesn't get it because it goes to the real person that has that IP address. Mm. And so the connection never gets set up. Oh, uh, oh, so oh. With the three-way handshake, you negotiate uh, basically a shared kind of secret number, uh, the sequence number. Yeah, that's that. Every packet has the sequence number, and it goes up as you send more bytes. Sure. And this makes it hard for an attacker to inject something in the middle of that because they don't know the sequence number. Right. Or the port numbers and so on. Right. Uh, But this vulnerability makes it possible for the attacker to figure out what the sequence number is going to be by using this uh, rate limit. Right. And keep pounding on it, and eventually uh, I can figure out the sequence number and inject stuff in the middle, and, yeah, I don't have to be in the middle. Okay, that makes sense. normally with a man in the middle, you just change the packets as they're going back and forth. This one allows you to just inject a packet in the middle when you normally you wouldn't have been able to. Because you wouldn't have known some of the secret numbers going back and forth. Yep, right. Um huh. uh, yeah, it says, in the paper, we discovered a much more powerful off-path attack that can quickly test whether any two arbitrary hosts on the internet are communicating using one or more TCP connections and allow you to discover the port numbers associated with those connections. And then, two, perform TCP sequence number inference, which allows the attacker to subsequently forcibly terminate the connection or inject malicious payloads into the connection. Um we emphasize that the attack can be carried out over a purely, or by a purely off-path attacker without running malicious code on either the client or the server. This can have uh, serious implications on security and privacy of the internet at large. This makes me actually want to try this with IRC. Mm. Because, like, I know what your IP address is now in the server, mm-hmm. and can I make you say embarrassing things on IRC? <laughs> <laughs> that would be such an awesome experiment. <laughs> the best troll ever. Wow, yeah. that is, that's trolling an IRC to a whole new level, Alan. Holy smokes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the root cause of vulnerability is the introduction of the Challenge ACK responses and the global rate limit imposed on certain TCP control packets. This feature is outlined in RFC 5961, which is implemented faithfully in Linux kernel version 2.6. Uh, at the very high level, the vulnerability allows an attacker to create contention on the shared resource, which is this global uh, rate limit. So I can just send so many fake packets that uh, we hit the rate limit, and so you never the server never sends the real packets out. Um, and then the attacker can then subsequently observe the effects on the counters as they change, uh, measurable through probing packets. So I just keep doing this and seeing what the sequence numbers are, and from that I can tell when they go up when it wasn't because of what I did, and then eventually I can figure out what the sequence number is for the connection with other people are having. Hmm. And that allows me to then inject stuff in the middle of it. They say, uh, through extensive experimentation, uh, we demonstrate that the attack uh, is, effective, is extremely effective and reliable. Given any two arbitrary hosts on the internet, it takes only 10 seconds to successfully infer whether they're talking or not. Um, if there is a connection, subsequently, it takes only tens of seconds to infer the TCP sequence numbers used on the connection. Uh, to demonstrate the impact, we performed a case study on a wide range of applications, and you can see more of those in the paper. So the features introduced in the RFC make it possible for your attacker to figure out the sequence number uh, by taking advantage of leveraging that rate limit thing. And so, yeah, you can see them doing it here in the video uh, and changing the page on the USA Today website. Hmm. Uh,
0: Chatroom's trying to come up with ways to fix it and come around, work around it. They're like, well,
1: I'll know what I'll do. I'll set up a free
0: BSD server with NGINX in front of my Linux boxes.
1: That will work. <laughs> yes. uh, <laughs> or you can just disable the rate limit and it mostly fixes it on Linux for now. And then patch when your OS comes up. Mm-hmm. Uh, besides injecting malicious JavaScript into a USA Today, uh, Today page, the researchers also showed how the vulnerability can be exploited to break uh, SSH connections. So I can just disconnect oh. stuff on SSH. Now if I knew this and I hacked your server then, and knew what your IP address was, possibly by looking at the logs of you logging into your server, I could just set this up to be running constantly so every time you try to connect to your server, I disconnect you and lock you out of your own machine so that you can't, you know, kick me out of it mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Uh, Or tamper with communications traveling over Tor. In the latter case, an attacker can terminate key links in the Tor chain. For instance, the connections an end user to an entry node or the entry node to a middle relay or the middle relay to an exit node. Uh, The Tor attack could be uh, particularly effective if it knocked out properly functioning exit nodes causing uh, all the traffic to go through, say, FBI-controlled exit nodes.
0: Mm. Uh,
1: Or if you could even do it so that you used... you know. Your entry, relay, and exit nodes were all controlled by the FBI, and they could, from that, because they control all of the nodes that aren't broken because they're constantly denial of servicing the rest with this attack, um, yeah. they would be able to see the whole connection string and trace back the source and destination of the connection, which Tor is supposed to prevent, but only if because the chance of them using all nodes controlled by one person was supposed to be too high.
0: Yep, yeah, I uh, I could... S- okay, hold on. Here's the very end. So here they do the swap now on the USA Today page. Uh, they're setting up, I think... Yeah, they've connected. And now they're spoofing the connection. And there you go. You are the chosen one. Yeah. So then the USA Today brings up a picture of Neo. Yeah.
1: Huh. So, yeah, there's uh, the PDF linked and then the coverage from uh, Ars Technica and so on. And the Ars Technica one has the, uh, Video. And the stuff as well. Yeah. Has the sysCTL you can set to mitigate this somewhat on on Oh, look at them. But yes, uh, doing a NGINX reverse proxy through FreeBSD will solve this problem. I do like the register headline. Linux security backfires,
0: flawless hackers inject malware into downloads, disruptor users, etc. They just cut right to it, don't they? (laughs) Very nice. Thank you, sir. Any other thoughts on that story? Uh, No, that's it for that one. I will go patch my S after the show. I will patch my S, and I will try to pass it along to the last audience this weekend, too, to tell them to go patch their S.
1: Yeah, certainly, because this episode uh, comes out a week after we actually recorded it. But
0: I can tell them to watch this episode for more info that will be coming out, so I'll do that. Because, yeah, I think we should get the word out. All right, well, you know what else we need to get the word out? We need to get the word out about our friends over at DigitalOcean. How about that? Use the promo code SNAPOcean, one word, apply it to your account and get a $10 credit. Look at that new fancy website, too. Yes, I like the
1: new design. Yeah, real shiny. The old one was very nice, but this one's even nicer.
0: The thing that I think long-term will like about this one is when they have brand-new fancy features, this box right here draws a lot more attention to it. So right now they're promoting the new block storage, 16 terabytes of SSD-based storage you can attach to your droplet. A uh, what? Well, DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to get a system up and running, in their infrastructure, they got data centers in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Toronto, and Germany, and they have really straightforward pricing. Now, five dollars a month is where they start. If you use our promo code SnapOcean, you get that rig two months for free. But you can actually break it, break it, break it down to hourly pricing. Three cents an hour is their most popular plan. Two gigs of RAM, two core processor, forty gigabytes of SSD, and three terabytes of transfer. Now, you, you can also attach the block storage. To go even <laughs> further, they have a really nice API that makes using DigitalOcean super cool. Like it takes it to the next level. Like here's an example of some open source code already written around their API DO Snapshot, a command line snapshot maker for your DigitalOcean droplets. Fully automated, multi threaded, baby. That is slick. Of course, DigitalOcean lets you take snapshots, backup built from templates. You can deploy entire systems or systems built. Around an application stack, they have all the different Linux eyes you'd want to run on a server. Plus, they also have that free BSD now this with have,
1: uh, optionally with ZFS. Boom! That's huge. Combine ZFS <laughs> with that block storage, and you know whether you're trying to run an own cloud or you could run a free NAS in there if you really wanted to. I know it. It. It seriously. I. I. I really think I gotta
0: play with that because that sounds so awesome. DigitalOcean's great. They also have a solid community full of. Great documentation because they take documentation very seriously. They have on staff editors and they've paid community members for really good contributions. Check it all out. Just use our promo code SNAPOcean to support this show. Give yourself a $10 credit. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I'll give you an example for that $10 credit. Uh, a, a super easy way to stretch that out is uh, I often. If I look at installing something to try out, like I was I was looking at a Markdown-based wiki that I wanted to load on my machine locally to run completely 100% local all the time, but I still used DigitalOcean to try it because I it didn't really want to go through the, the process of installing it's, Apache. It's actually and PHP. faster than building a local VM. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, Plus, I don't need those packages on my system if I don't end up going with that particular product because there was other ones that weren't PHP-based, and so I thought – you know, it, it takes me 55 seconds to spin up a droplet, and uh, I was extra, I was feeling extra lazy, so I just deployed Ubuntu LTS with the entire LAMP stack already set up. And when you log into it, the first thing you do is you set a root password. The second thing you do is you get a message of the day that tells you this is your web directory uh, path, var, you know, uh, you know www, HTML, www, whatever. You know, it's, you have it set up there. Here's, your, here's the URL to go to, HTTP colon, you know, IP address slash whatever, slash info.php. This is so you can see what your PHP is capable of. I uploaded the files to the web directory using SCP, uh, and I, I, within two minutes and 30 seconds, was trying out the new Markdown wiki and decided, I don't want this. This is crap. It's, it hasn't been updated since 2014. It barely renders pages anymore. And so and, and within about three minutes, I had destroyed the droplet. And so I... I, I Maybe I paid $0.03 cents tops. I don't even know because I, I got one of the cheaper ones. Um, and it's so nice to keep my system clean. It's, it's super performant to have the entire stack ready to go. I love it. And there's tons of great guides. So once you get something set up, you can take it even further, like Let's Encrypt and Postgres and OwnCloud, and using containers, using virtualization, working with FreeBSD. They have guides on all of it. DigitalOcean.com. Just use our promo code SNAPOcean to support the show and get a $10 credit. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. So this next story, the last story was the one the chat room was buzzing about. This is the one I've been buzzing about because I've been waiting for the breakdown on TechSnap. It looks like a total debacle on Microsoft's part. And Mm -hmm. I'm waiting to hear all about it. The uh, secure boot key is causing some sort of panic, like there's a leak or something. Tell me what's happened, Alan.
1: So Microsoft has accidentally leaked the keys to the kingdom, uh, permitting attackers to unlock devices protected by Secure Boot and may not uh, be possible to fully resolve the leak. (laughs) That's kind (coughs) of leaks. Yes. Uh, So if you provision uh, this magic policy file, that is, if you install it into your firmware, the Windows Boot Manager will not verify that it's booting an official Microsoft signed operating system. It will boot anything you give it, uh, provided it's cryptographically signed, even if it's self-signed. Uh, like, say, the shim for the Linux kernel, hmm. or a rootkit, or a bootkit. So that's kind of a problem. Uh, this signed policy was never meant to leave Microsoft's test lab, but it seems like it did. <laughs> uh, the register understands that this debug mode policy was accidentally shipped on retail devices and discovered by uh, two curious security researchers named slips and My123. Um, the policy was effectively inert and deactivated on these products, but present nonetheless. Uh, so this is basically a debugging engineering thing that Microsoft, so that when you're trying to, if you're the manufacturer building one of these tablets, you, and they've made it so that in the BIOS you can't turn Secure Boot off, then how do you test different versions of the OS and get stuff working? So Microsoft gives you this debug policy that allows you to skip Secure Boot, or you Secure right. Boot this thing, the bootloader, but the bootloader doesn't actually check the next step. Right, but they fundamentally Which they're not made... supposed to sign one of those. Yeah. The, that that the whole rules of Boot is that you ha- you only sign it if it actually does check the next step. Mhm. This is the, and and you know um and they accidentally distributed that and people have copies of it now.
0: So, okay, just to make sure I'm following, you're telling me Microsoft created like a master secure boot override key that just disables yes. it for OEM so that way they don't
1: have to right. hassle with this annoying secure boot. <laughs> and Be- then because because they made it in the BIOS so there's no way to turn it off. Okay. Instead of, you know, on most desktops you can still have the op- go into the BIOS and turn it on or off. But here's here's uh, the but for these tablets and stuff they made it so you couldn't. But then they locked themselves out of trying things and, and working on their sure. next version of the operating system. Uh, so they made a backdoor. And then the back door accidentally slipped out. But here's what I don't understand.
0: Yeah. Uh you make this backdoor and you distribute that to I mean wh- wh- how would you even how could you guess? Maybe a, a dozen, maybe more Somewhere OEM there. partners? How- and How is that not going to leak? It
1: on the, yeah, exactly. How is that not? That is so irresponsible. It is. Well, it's, as as we'll get to at the point, it's the whole reason why having secret backdoor keys, it's, it's why. Yes. It's why the FBI's whole, you know, yes. oh, give us, if we'll have a secret backdoor key that only the FBI will have and no one else will ever be able to get it. And it will only be used for good things. Mm-hmm. It's like the chance of that key not getting used for the wrong thing. are are, are basically yeah, and, zero. you know in in the context
0: of the FBI thing, that would of course would be they would they would share that with different divisions and departments within the federal government, different law enforcement agencies and there's dozens and hundreds of those. So they would end up
1: Well, even if they didn't share with anything like that, there's only this group of people, one of those people would do a Snowden. Yeah. Yeah. Problem I problem. mean, but what's or, amazing or, to me or OPM hack some but if I, I you could, know, so somebody at the lab will get malware, yes, it's just—it seems
0: inevitable. The bad guys will steal the key. That's inevitable. I mean, even if Microsoft created this and only kept it inside at Microsoft, that it still seems inevitable that eventually, maybe it'd be ten years, but eventually it would leak. So the well, fact that they created this is is almost nearly inconceivable. But okay, I'll give them that. But the fact that they distributed it outside Microsoft headquarters is just—it's it's, that's astounding. Oh
1: yeah. uh, well, and the other thing is that. Because of the design of the system, it's hard to just revoke it. There's like there's a blacklist of, of signatures and keys that aren't that you can so you can install this firmware update and it won't use any of these fake keys. Uh, but the problem is that some of the keys that would have to revoke to make this stop working are like the Microsoft Secure Platform 2014 key, which if you revoke that one, people's installed disks wouldn't work anymore. <laughs> they say uh, while it was for internal debugging purposes, Microsoft created and assigned a special secure boot policy that disables the operating system signature check, presumably to allow programmers to boot and test uh, fresh OS builds without having to sign each one. This in turn allows someone with admin privileges or an attacker with physical access to a machine, not only to bypass secure boot and run any operating system they wish, such as Linux or Android, but also permits the installation and execution of boot kits and root kits at the deepest level of the device. Uh, the backdoor, which Microsoft had put into the Secure Boot because they decided to not let the users turn off Secure Boot on certain devices, allows for Secure Boot to, dis- to be disabled everywhere now.
0: Hmm. <laughs> it's
1: like, whoops. Uh, you can see the irony. Also, the irony that Microsoft themselves provided us uh, several nice golden keys, uh, which the uh, researchers like, as the FBI would say, for us to use for our purposes. <laughs> Uh, you know the the FBI wanted these golden keys for all crypto, uh, and we can see what happens when you create a golden key. The wrong people get it, and all of a sudden every lock can be opened, and everything is terrible. I don't feel like this is going to change that debate, though,
0: because we've had other nope. examples it's, it's of this. Proof of why this yeah. debate. Is, but it's why, not the first that idea proof. Will never work. It's
1: not the first proof that we've exactly. had. We've been having this argument since the '90s, and they only go away for a little while at a time. Yeah, and uh, the, he just yesterday,
0: just yesterday, was making statements again about it. I mean, it's almost on a weekly basis now. He's out speaking in public uh, about this. The, I'm sorry, by he I mean the FBI director James
1: Comey. Yes. Uh, Between June and July, Microsoft uh, finally decided that this was worthy of a bug bounty. Originally, they didn't think it was. Uh, And they pushed out a fix, uh, MS-16-094. However, this fix was deemed inadequate, uh, although it somewhat mitigated the problem. So they've done a second fix, MS-16-100, that uh, came out as part of Patch Tuesday this week. Um, The update blacklists a bunch of revoked keys and signatures... Uh, so they can no longer be used, but Microsoft cannot revoke all of the old keys, like everything before, say, last year or something, uh, because they're used in things that people don't update, like read-only install CDs and so on. Uh, So uh, the summary from the register is, if you're using a locked-down Secure Boot PC, like a Windows RT tablet, or um, I don't know that there's any desktops that you can't turn Secure Boot off yet, but maybe if there is, uh, and you have the admin rights on the box, uh, and you want to boot something else, all the above is going to be of quite a bit of interest to you. If you're an IT admin who relies on Secure Boot to prevent uh, loading of unsigned binaries and drivers and root kits, uh, then uh, all the above is going to be very worrying to you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so then the register updated their article, and it actually includes links now to a bunch of scripts to actually be able to uh, unlock Windows RT tablets, like the uh, Fumble Slab or whatever they're called, and a bunch of other ones. Hmm. So they actually see there's a, the policy installation script of, uh, so that you can work. And oh, and it's a zip file that it downloads. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, but they have all the stuff you need to actually unlock a machine if it is locked so that you can install Linux on your tablet or Android instead of Windows RT. Uh, specifically because uh, on some of those devices, Windows has decided they're not going to keep updating them. Yes. Like they're, they're basically a dead platform now. It's like, well, I paid for this tablet. I'd love to run Linux on it. Yeah, stuff. go screw yourself. Go screw yourself. Uh, although interestingly, the researchers' blog uh, is is quite interesting. I don't know if you saw this, uh, but it's a old-fashioned hacker blog with the demo scene music. This and, is my and favorite thing animation.
0: today. this is my this is seriously my favorite thing today, right? It's got like a a, a yellow spinning key uh, with a yeah, starfield graphic. Yeah, yeah, golden key of course, obviously. Uh, good MIDI music and then the and then the text fades in.
1: And it, the text bounces, which actually makes it slightly difficult to yes, read. Yes,
0: it does. It, yes, it does. Not slightly. It makes it very annoying to read, which I think was intentional. Yes. That's uh, pretty good, though. And can I scroll it? Does it scroll the, okay?
1: Uh, yep. You, yeah, can even it does. So yeah. you can copy and paste the text. So you can copy and paste the text into a regular text somewhere so you can read it a little more or a little less eye-strainingly.
0: Oh, yes. That's pretty great. That's... The demo
1: scene music and everything in the background um, yes. is quite an amusing. Uh...
0: It reminds me of old um, uh, key generators and stuff, too. Yeah, it's all that old demo scene yep. stuff. Which, get it, golden key. ba bump. Mm, It's good stuff. I love it, Alan. All right, is that it? Anything else on that story? Uh, yeah, that's what it for that one. I shouldn't say that's it because that's sort of a huge story, and it's what I've been looking forward to you breaking down
1: all day. Yeah, uh, We don't have all the details on it, but it, it seems like it's pretty bad. We'll have to see. Yeah. Over the next couple of years, what it ends up meaning.
0: Yeah. 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 Shake that off. All right. Let's get it all. Let's get, let's just shake it all off. Let's talk about Ting, .ting techsnap.ting.com. Mobile that makes sense. Only pay for what you use wireless. They have CDMA and GSM. It's $6 for the line. There's no contract, no fee to end it early because you just turn it off whenever you need it. And you just pay for what you use. $6 for the line plus Uncle Sam's Cut. Then you pay for what you use. It's super, super straightforward. They have great, radical customer service. You'll get to talk to an actual human being. Your average bill is around twenty-three bucks per line. But this is the big news. I don't know if you heard, Alan, but Ting just dropped their rates. Yes,
1: uh, uh, I saw. Actually, a friend of mine on Twitter was talking about how much yeah, he was paying now. Was yeah, like, oh, it,
0: awesome. it, yeah. It's 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 a big, super competitive drop. Uh, here's a little, we got a quick video about it.
1: Data is now cheaper on Ting. From now on, prices look like this. Need more? It's just $10 a gig. That's what new customers pay. That's what current customers pay. It's simple. We like simple. See
0: for yourself at ting.com slash rates. Just go to com. First, they actually, they also change the way they calculate the uh, transfer a little bit, and... The whole thing works out to save everybody money. New customers, existing customers. If you're already a customer, you just automatically get the new pricing. So if, if you've been a TIN customer for a while now, you, you just got a nice price. Price bill will just be smaller. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Isn't that awesome? And they got yeah. a bunch of good devices unlocked from feature phones to high-end Android devices. You can bring your own. Just check their BYOD page, which is great because then you'll get a credit on your account, which probably pay for more than your first month. Or you can buy one directly from them if you like to. Might want to make mm-hmm. it easy. Check them out techsnap.ting.com it really is mobile that is truly different and I like to vote with my wallet because that industry is a mess and Ting is cleaning it up techsnap.ting.com thanks Ting okay Alan this is looking like uh, one of these episodes that just on almost I shouldn't judge a book by it's cover but almost title alone it's got me Uh, myths pies and features oh my episode 154 of the PSD now program that sounds good Yeah,
1: uh, it was a good episode Check it out. Check it
0: out. Episode 155. I know. Realize. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you guys uh, pre recorded yesterday, too, a little early because you got yes. a lot going on. We
1: finally have an interview in that uh, the one episode that will come out yesterday or today of right. the week this actually airs.
0: The interview known as Friday Apocalypse, where Alan spent a Friday chatting with somebody about BSD and then put it into a BSD Now program for you. And it turned yes. out great. That'll be in 155. Um, so go check out 154. It's just out now. Go learn all about that BSD platform. You hear us talk about it quite a bit here on the show. Now, how about a whole show dedicated to it? That's BSD now. You can go grab the HD version because we're at the midway point on the TechNet program. And as soon as we wrap up here, you can get more HD Jude in your face. BSD now 154. But with the news all done, it means it's time for the TechNet feedback. for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the Jupiter broadcasting website and choosing techsnap from the drop down our first email comes in from i'm gonna i'm gonna say eve ev because i'm gonna just mess that up okay. what do you, do you have a guess on the name there no no you have a guinea yeah that's pretty good uh but here's where we go this is th- this is a particularly interesting question alan and i never even considered this hi uh, all this talk about ZFS got me imagining things. I'm planning to read more before I do something, but uh, maybe you will stop my train of thoughts. Is this stupid? A portable NAS based on a bunch of SD cards. They are easy to replace, and it looks like it would be easy to grow total storage with Zpool. Uh So maybe like on a small system on a chip, RAM is an issue. So if he's you know on a Raspberry Pi USB land on the same bus, that could be a problem. Uh, but I was thinking about getting like an Odroid C2 enabling ZRAM and trying ZFS with a bunch of SD cards or plain USB flash drives. Is it worth it?
1: Just well, experiment, the problem I suppose. Is that in order to, if you were actually trying to build, you know, like a RAID Z2 redundant array of SD cards or USB sticks, you would need at least three or more SD cards that you could connect at the same time. Right? That could be
0: doable, then, though, You know, even if you're just doing like 32-gigabyte well, SD cards I, to
1: experiment. I don't know many uh, SOCs
0: that have more than
1: three SD card readers.
0: Oh, yeah. I was thinking like something over USB, but even then, it's all going to be on one USB bus.
1: Yeah. It seems uh, like so it'd actually be easier. It's going to be terrible. It seems like this is particularly hard on a system uh, on an SOC. You really need some more like... So you're missing like all the RAM, and you don't have much bus speed or CPU power. I think the bus oh. speed is what's going to get you. Well, yes, like you know, especially if you're USB two, uh, you just the yeah. speed's not there to do uh-uh. very much. Plus, SD cards, even high end ones, are really not that fast.
0: Is an interesting idea though, uh, like just from, if you had if you had like some sort of if you could like, somehow uh, have multiple reader, USB buses it, and multiple card readers and you could have a bank of SD cards, the, the theory is sort of fun to play with.
1: Right, and uh, because ZFS does its own labeling, the fact that you could just shuffle the SD cards and it would still put them back together in the right order and stuff uh, has some advantages, but it's just, they're so slow and Mm. stuff. Um, Mm. Also, ZRAM, uh, well, immediately he's obviously talking about running ZFS on Linux on ARM. I have no idea how well that works. Um, I know that ZFS works quite well on ARM64 on FreeBSD, but uh, with 32-bit, uh, it's not just the amount of RAM, but just the size of the address space also runs into problems. Even running uh, uh, sure. you know, on, MD60, on on like I386 machines, like 32-bit uh, yeah. Intel processors, yeah. uh, the address space problems can be a bit of an issue. Um, so yeah, ZRAM, probably not a great idea. Um, ZFS is getting its own kind of version of that called Compressed Arc. Uh, it works better than ZRAM though, so instead of you know, saying, "Oh, we're out of RAM now, so let's try to compress some of the RAM." What it does is, if the files are stored on the disk compressed with ZFS, it keeps them compressed in RAM and just decompresses them each time you read them out of RAM, uh, and that allows you to get basically Clever. the same effect uh, without having to um, spend any time compressing RAM that you already ha- well, compressing stuff you already had in RAM or doing any kind of management of what's in RAM. Right? It's just, oh, we'll just keep it. It was already compressed on the disk, so when we read it, we just won't decompress it, and we'll decompress it later when you need it. And now you can fit more in RAM. Um, but yeah, um, I don't know. You could have. I've, I've seen people do it with a bunch of USB sticks, but I don't know that it's really worth the effort. It's just for fun if you do it, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, if you there's some stuff where maybe if I had to use a USB, stick, I, would, I would do like a, a three way mirror. So that there's three USB sticks that all contain identical copies, uh, but you know the write speed is so slow. Yeah, I'd almost want to try just as a crazy build, but nothing,
0: yes. nothing more so than you that. You could,
1: but yeah, you'd be better off with something with
0: not for production
1: with faster USB ports. Or the biggest problem with SD cards is you would need n SD card readers, where n is a number yes. of at least three or more. And I would and think
0: you would probably not want to do more than one SD, one more than maybe two SD cards per bus. But that still seems like you're. It, or yeah. controller, I should say. Yeah. Uh, okay. Raymond comes in with an interesting question. And I think it's gonna. the answer will be it depends, but here we go. Greetings, Alan and Chris. Just had to ask, could one use a laptop hardware for a free NAS server? I've been thinking of using one of my semi-trucks to hold movies and music, or one in my semi-truck to hold my music and movies. You know, I totally understand. I want to have something portable in Lady Jupiter, too. He says, I have to be very careful how much power I can draw, and this is why I'm asking. I'm in the same boat. Thanks for a great podcast. um,
1: Trucking across the USA,
0: he says.
1: (laughs) Uh, So in particular, as long as it's only holding stuff where it's not the only – like the problem with using a laptop obviously is that you will have a limited amount of place to put disks in a laptop, right? And you don't want to use too many disks because that will add the amount of power you're drawing, right? Um, And then – so Yeah. The the bigger question is always what quality of hard how much money should I spend on the hardware for my free NAS is like well how much do you care about the data if it's just movies and music and if the drive blows and you don't have redundancy and and you don't care then that's fine uh, whereas you know if you're storing all your important documents for your business or your taxes or whatever you probably want to have a machine that's decent enough and has enough redundant hard drives and so on to to resist failures um, in your semi track yes you could do a free NAS laptop but I almost wonder if you would just want to put say PCBSD on the laptop and store the files on ZFS directly. And then that way you can play them with the laptop. Yeah. Use that screen. Otherwise you would have to have the laptop NAS holding the movies and music and then something else playing them. Yeah. Yeah. You can take uh, advantage of so that screen. But yeah, if you just put PCBSD on the laptop, then it would be ZFS. You can put the files on it. Uh, but then it would also have a screen where you could play the movies, uh, not while you're driving, uh, or the music. I have a couple of thoughts.
0: So you could just answer the laptop angle if your laptop has an eSATA port. That could be a serious advantage. I've got a few laptops that do. Yeah, uh, my
1: laptop, the back USB port is yellow. Yeah, uh, yep. And it's a uh, combined yep. USB That's set. pretty.
0: Yeah, that's a ThinkPad thing, right? That's pretty common, I think, on ThinkPads. Uh, also, another possibility uh, depends on what the disks
1: are in. You could, iSCSI could be a thing. Um, yeah, but really, I'm, I'm figuring he just means the the drive that's in the laptop. Yeah. Uh, and yes, you can use an old laptop for that. I don't know that you'd want to make it a NAS just because then you need a separate client machine to actually play it. Yeah. Now, you know, if, if he has a TV it, already and he might that, yes. you know, if, if you're connecting to it and streaming via Plex to your phone or something and the laptop actually lives like under the bunk or something yeah. so that, and then you're just using your phone as the client, then yes, you could do that.
0: Now, Raymond, one other thing I'd just throw at you because your question sort of presumes that you do have a way to, Play the media back off a free NAS machine. So I'm wondering what you're connect, what you have connected to your television. If you're truly going for low power and simple, uh, I just recently did an episode on Linux Action Show. My initial, my initial plan for this uh, was to do an Nvidia Shield TV, which has Android Marshmallow on it, which supports external storage, and uh, it also you can run Kodi and Plex directly on the Android TV Shield. Nvidia Shield TV is what it's called, mm-hmm. and if you just got, like, you can get external storage drives that are, like, hardware RAID 1 or something like that, and yeah. I, something I, like I that. I don't know,
1: if, if it's just copies of movies, and you have a free NES at home that has the other copy, in case you yeah. lose them or whatever, so yeah. you don't have to redownload. download yeah. then you don't really care right. if the one in your... Except also, for, I guess, if you're, all, if you're on a long drive, and your drive dies, and you have no movies, you might be slightly upset. So, what I was but thinking about doing, too... power going, the fewer hard drives you have to power, yes. the better it is, right? So, in Raymond, case, some,
0: it, something else to consider is a little expensive, but it... Uh, it works super 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 well is USB three one terabyte SSD attached to the Nvidia shield TV because then that that SSD sits there and it gets a little rattle and it doesn't suspend the head and it, right. what happens is if you get any kind of movement any kind of shaking the hard drive head suspends and your your media playback cuts off uh, so the right. SSD
1: sort of handles that a little better well, and SSDs will draw less power than a spinning drive because they're not having to drive that drive. And more the
0: NVIDIA Shield TV is, is ARM based and I've run it um off of my inverter running off of my house batteries, which would probably be similar to what Raymond would be doing uh for like twelve hours with no problem.
1: Right. And well also the other advantage to a laptop is that it has a built in laptop battery. Although it's if it's an older one that laptop battery might not be that useful anymore. But if it is then uh that allows you to kind of Avoid okay. powering it from the truck when you don't have to. Good luck, Raymond. All right, so
0: Mike writes in with an interesting question. you got to figure this has crossed people's mind when they can see each other's Wi-Fi. Hey, that's my neighbor's Wi-Fi network. He says, uh, hey, guys, love the show. My neighbor and I are both non-IT professionals. Disclosure. Over the decades, we have swapped back uh, backups with each other utilizing Sneakernet, starting with floppies in ancient times and currently using my Western Digital Passport, Ultra USB drives. As uh, As we are across the street from each other... This is intended as protection from physical loss, like a burglar or fire, but not like a cyber attack. Uh, we can see each other's Wi-Fi networks, and we're thinking, why couldn't I set up Wi-Fi Drive? Why couldn't I set up a Wi-Fi Drive in her house, borrowing her power, but on my network? And she could set up the same in my house. That way, we would still be protected from fire or robbery, but we wouldn't have to worry about physically walking the other backup over. Besides issues with transfer speeds. Are we missing anything? Can you recommend a simple Wi-Fi external drive? We don't care about streaming or being portable, i.e. battery powered, Bluetooth, etc. Just Wi-Fi external HD enclosures. Thanks, Mike. Uh,
1: Hmm. Not off the top of my head. Yeah, I don't know if I have one off the top of my head either. I know Western Digital makes some. I I don't know if I would trust any of the uh, drive with built-in Wi-Fi, but... You could definitely build a free NAS with Wi-Fi and connect to the other person's Wi-Fi across the house. Or and it doesn't – again, that could be where a laptop might make sense too with an external drive attached to it. You could
0: take an old laptop, which would have yep. Wi-Fi built into it, hook up an external USB drive. And it, it, it's, not, it's not as crazy as it sounds actually. That's, right.
1: Now, if you weren't on the sides of the street, I would say, you know, bury an Ethernet cable. Yeah. It's awesome.
0: Yeah, there are uh, hard but, you know there are hardware appliances, storage appliances that have Wi Fi, but they're all meant for like local land picture sharing. So a lot of them right. are doing like uh, broadcast wide of, open
1: and yeah. broadcasting DLNA, so it's the just pro- auto discovered by your TV.
0: That's the problem with the the, the that's the market they're selling the Wi Fi. Yeah, uh, that's the only thing there. So you got to watch out for that. I kind of like Alan's idea you know cuz you could really it could be a pretty low end box because you you are yep. not looking for high transfer speeds in that situation right so so uh, in so in theory if i'm following you would have a machine on her in her in her house on your wireless land and you'd have a mich- and she'd have a machine in your house on her wireless land yeah. uh so they'd be on the same physical uh network spaces as your pc or your your other computers on your network so that and you could back up that should work fine that should all mm. as long as the signal's uh. good
1: and I, I guess, yes, the definitely advantage to uh, an external drive with the Wi-Fi built in is that you don't have the rest of a computer there. It's just an external drive. Um, but, you know, you lose some flexibility there. But being non-IT professionals, that's maybe it's good enough for you. It depends what you do. Yeah, doing.
0: you know, I really, really like the laptop-free NAS type idea, too, because then you could use some yeah. plugins that actually facilitate backup. And you could take advantage of things like RSync
1: um, and whatnot to to transfer data around. Because rsync with a speed limit set, and you means you can just like trickle update all the time, and not have it take up all the Wi Fi, but always you know <laughs> using as much as yeah. it needs, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so last email of the day, Nicole, I think
0: is how you say it. Nicole writes in, he says, uh, "What's the next best thing to ZFS?" Hello, Chris and Alan, greetings from Eastern Europe. First, let me tell you how much I enjoy the show. You guys are awesome. Keep up the work. Now, here's my question. I decided to get serious about my home storage, and since I watch TechSnap and Last religiously, my first thought was. Free NAS and ZFS. However, my storage server is a refurbished HP Compaq with only 4 gigabytes of DDR2 RAM. I was planning to install two mirrored 3 or 4 terabyte disks in it, but as far as I can tell, my RAM won't be anywhere near enough for 3 or 4 terabytes of ZFS, and I can't get another 4 or 8 gigabytes of
1: DDR2 RAM easily where I live. Yeah, DDR2 is getting hard to come by, and sticks that are big enough that you can actually put that many in the number of slots you have are difficult. I have the same problem here. It's not... Specific to Eastern Europe, yeah.
0: She says, should I go with smaller disks, i.e. 2 terabytes, so that the requirements are more than uh, more than 1 gigabyte per uh, of RAM per 1 terabyte of ZFS, or should I use an alternative file system? My main concern is preventing bit rot for my photos. Is there any tool that can help me with that outside of ZFS? Best regards.
1: Um, so that 1 gigabyte of RAM per 1 terabyte of ZFS is, is just loose guidance. Uh, you could definitely do mere three or four terabyte drives with four terabytes of RAM, or four gigabytes of RAM. Oh, yeah? Um, in general, it, the rule, it, it's just a basic rule because it really comes down to what size your working set is, what are the files you're using frequently. If you're using it just for backups and bulk storage, uh, not having that much RAM will still be okay. Um, you know, as long as you don't try to use features like d or something where you can actually lock yourself out of being able to import the pool... Uh, with four gigs of RAM, you you can still do your mirrored uh, two four terabyte drives mirrored together and and just use ZFS, because there really isn't um, another good file system that will prevent data corruption. As Not for we'll a while about, sitting you know, on I'd disk. Say. What about like backup tools that do checksums and sure? But uh, the problem is if it's the only copy of your of your um, mm-hmm. of your picture, and you can detect that it went corrupt, but you could detect that by looking at it. Uh, it can't fix it unless you have two copies. Whereas ZFS, when you're doing mirrors, you have the two copies and it can detect when one of them goes wrong and make sure you use the one that didn't go wrong. Whereas other mirroring solutions won't detect that one went wrong. And even though the second drive might have a good copy, half the times when you open it, you get the bad copy. Mm. And, and if if the to, uh, if that goes on long enough, eventually the drive with a good copy fails, you replace it with a new drive, and it mirrors it from the bad copy. Whereas ZFS detects that sooner and updates both copies to be the right one so that if the, the drive that only, had the only remaining copy of the good one goes away, when you swap in the new drive, the other drive actually has a good copy to restore from.
0: Hmm.
1: Roger that. So there you go. The big problem with other uh, mir- like regular hardware RAID is that it will continue to replicate the bad copy uh yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, and you can back up a bad copy for a long time too.
1: <laughs> that's that's the thing about ZFS Scrub is that it can detect those earlier and uh and sort them out while it's still fixable. Hmm. So, so yes.
0: Uh don't follow know. that rule so tightly then.
1: Yeah. Uh you can you can just go ahead and use FreeNAS and ZFS there. Um it should be fine. There you go. Thanks for sending your emails in, guys. <laughs> Uh, you know, ZFS is is so much further ahead than every other operating system or file system. It's really hard to recommend people use anything else.
0: You know, I'm surprised the uh, ButterFS issue didn't make it into the show this week. Did you hear about it's, this?
1: It's the second story in the Oh, room.
0: is it? Okay, yeah. I, it's funny, Alan, because when I was researching the story for uh, Linux Action Show on Sunday, guess whose name shows up in the Twitter stream? <laughs> it's Alan Jude shows up. and he's <laughs> So we'll get to that story in, in just a moment. We would love to get more of your questions. Please send them into techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or go over to The contact page and choose TechSnap from the drop down and send your questions in, and we'll try to get them answered in a future edition of the TechSnap program. I also check the subreddit, TechSnap.reddit.com. All right, with the feedback all done, let's go do the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup are stories that didn't fit at the top of the show, but we have some links we want to share with you to check out after the show. We want to go through some of them, and a lot of these links came from our secret intelligence network that nobody knows about over at TechSnap.reddit.com. Shh, it's totally a secret. Like our first story, Uh, this sounds pretty interesting. Uh, Researchers have cracked open an unusually advanced malware threat That hid for five years an espionage platform with more than 50 modules was almost certainly state-sponsored, Alan. And it was just Mm -hmm. hidden away. I know. little James Bond action going on. The malware, alternatively known as Project Sauron, by researchers from Kaspersky Lab and Remsec, uh, their counterparts from Symantec, uh, say it's been active since at least 2011. Much of Project Soron resides slowly in computer memory and was written in the form of a binary large object, making it hard to detect using antivirus. Antivirus. Okay, I just teased this story. This is really the one I want yes. to talk about in the roundup. Um, Butter FS may be sometimes recalculating the wrong parity in RAID 5 yeah. mode or 6. Yes. Yeah, so the
1: RAID 5 6 code turns out to have a bug. Oh. Uh, so this guy did a test. So what he did is he created three virtual disks. Uh, and created a ButterFS RAID 5 out of them and filled them with data. And they looked all right. So we got 64K on the first disk and the 64K on the second disk and then all the parity data on the third disk. Uh, right, so he had his file and it's broke up. there. So then he corrupted the copy of the data on one of the disks. Okay. And when he ran the ButterFS scrub, which is supposed to find the checksum error and repair it, it repaired it, but it wrote out gibberish, not the correct data.
0: Uh oh, that and sounds it turns bad. Out
1: it 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 couldn't get the files back. So um, uh, so this... it, attached to this mailing list post, he included a script that he used to trigger the bug, and he says he's run it several times, and the problem seems to be pretty obvious. And then the developers uh, checked it out, and they're like, uh, "Yeah, turns out it doesn't work." Th- that the problem I have
0: with this particular bug is not only is it super bad. Uh, but it also would seem to indicate that it was just never even tested
1: right like uh it's not clear i think it's possible maybe it would cor- uh, read uh, be able to recover if one of a one of the drives in a raid 5 failed and you put in a fresh one but it's just if if there's bit rot on one of the drives that it might not do it right although it either way it it, it should be the same code path and it shouldn't matter but uh yeah I don't know exactly what's going on, but uh, the, uh, the mailing list post has more details about what the problem is. The uh, ButterFS wiki over at wiki.kernel.org has been updated with a giant red warning saying the parity raid code has multiple serious data loss bugs in it and should not be used for anything other than testing purposes.
0: What was the raid hole bug that uh, we talked about uh, with the Butter? Raid,
1: the, raid, uh, the raid 5 write hole is... Right.
0: right, yes, I know, yeah. I just remember there was oh, another... Uh, yeah. Yeah, that was another issue. So we also have this tweet here. Yes, uh, from the official ButterFS Twitter oh, account. Unbelievable, from the official ButterFS Twitter account. And uh, it reads as follows. Beware of a ButterFS RAID five six serious data loss bug with a link to the ButterFS uh, wiki, wiki page, page. Where
1: they have the big red warning.
0: And then it says after that, consider using ZFS on Linux before... The bugs are fixed. I think they mean, until, but yes. I know. That's still a funny structure, too. In other words, they're recommending use ZFS. So the, the ButterFS Twitter account. Is this real, do you
1: think? I don't know. It's uh, been there since January 2010, but maybe they just, it's, you know, it's got the right thing in it. It's linking to this, the wiki. Is the ButterFS wiki.
0: The wiki does not say consider using ZFS, but yeah. uh, this- I can edit it. <laughs> Is this I mean, how can how can anybody ser- how can anybody serious about their data consider pl- deploying ButterFS at well, this stage?
1: In particular, it seems like this feature has obviously never been tested. Yeah, that's I'm because the guy just wrote a, a shell script to test it and it was like, Oh, look, it doesn't work. Yeah. It was
0: super simple stuff that he was doing. It was like yeah. obviously and so here's what I get from this. I get a file system that has had a checkered path so far. Uh I've I've personally had data loss. Um, I've had machines fail to boot because of uh, kernel locks and other problems. We've had RAID 5 holes. And now we have this, uh, this uh, checksum parity error.
1: Yeah, um, what's how, interesting how is... How can you take this file system seriously? This guy's... Um, uh, a script that does this, uh, you know, corrupting the data thing. Um, it's actually in the, in the FreeBSD handbook section that uh, me and Benedict wrote on how ZFS works. We actually basically do that as an example to show how to recover from a failed disk in ZFS. Where you create file backed uh VDEVs, and then you actually like destroy one of them or overwrite it with zeros and then bring it back online and scrub. it. Yeah. Uh section yeah. 19.3 point eight, self healing of the FreeBSD handbook. <laughs> and uh you you actually see go in there and we obliterate the file by overwriting it with random bytes, and then we run a scrub and watch it fix it, and then you get the right bytes out of it again.
0: I agree with the chat room. I mean, the chat room, I think, has nailed this here. Uh, It's inexcusable that this was pretty much not tested because this is people's vital data, especially RAID data. That's enterprise data. That's massive. Uh, This is is just, I mean, this to me seems unforgivable, but...
1: Well, it's just, just the point I was trying to make. In ZFS... This exact experiment is in the documentation yeah, as a way to learn how the re- recovery works. That's why it
0: seems so egregious that it wasn't tried because it seems yeah. so obvious in a way. It yeah. just seems like their responsibility when they're creating something that's supposed to hold people's data, especially in a RAID environment. That, uh, I just – I can't – I got to think about this more because my mind is yeah. blown.
1: Because uh, there's previously been a bug in the mirror code, right? I think.
0: Yes. Yes.
1: See, so, yeah, you know, it's not that ZFS never had any bugs. It's that ZFS was tested and, and worked before it was released. And it had is, Well, it had it, Sun's it, internal QA. Right, well, in particular, yes. ZFS was developed as a product and then open-sourced when it was, you know, obviously not finished, but when it was working. Whereas Butterfest is basically being developed in the open and people are using it too soon, but mostly because... People keep saying it's ready, and it's obviously not. Well, it seems perhaps
0: like, is it is it because it's being used too soon, or is it because the fundamentals are wrong, or the people working well, on it? I, like, I'm trying to I get to the root of that. I know
1: that much about the internals. I know some of its design decisions were like, in ZFS, they found that the way they designed it means that this doesn't work very well, so we'll design it the other way so that that does work. It's not clear whether that's the right answer yet, but... Um, I don't know that there's necessarily fundamental flaws in the design of ButterFS. Just the actual execution is definitely had a problem. And
0: Linux could really use a great file system like ButterFS. It'd be great to have an option like it. So I'd love to see it be successful, but it's just, whew, talk about a loser. All right. So this next story feels a little gimmicky because it seems like it's an issue with software running on top of Linux. But the headline goes as follows. Linux malware? That'll never happen. Okay.
1: Just this one. Yes, it will. Uh, you know, mal- they said there'd never be malware for OS 10 once a lot of people used it and, the, you know, they were low-hanging enough fruit. This is,
0: But this is a Redis problem. And isn't it specifically people using – what's that?
1: Yes, this particular one. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, uh, the malware on Windows usually comes in via Java or Flash or the browser, not something but else. But couldn't so. you just
0: as easily exploit Redis running on FreeBSD if it's a FreeBSD problem? Uh, I mean, if it's, if it's not, if it's not a Linux
1: server problem
0: yeah uh, it says it just says in the article it doesn't rely on a Linux flaw to run the problem is instead between the ears of those who run Redis without requiring a password for connections it, it, so there's it do. yeah, so there's Redis default installs out there that don't use a password and then they're able to make a connection to it and and probably use some sort of i don't know why it's such I don't know why they're calling this malware, but they, to me it well, seems I'd like this would affect it, like Redis this. on any system
1: yes yeah uh, but you know.
0: That's how it gets spun. But they say there is malware component called linux.lady.one. So there yep. you go. Say so, Okay. No, All it's right. It's not
1: the first Linux malware either. No, no,
0: no, no. no.
1: It's, it's going to become more common, especially as people start using it on their desktops more.
0: Okay. So this is an interesting story. Oh, boy, yeah. Volkswagen. Almost every Volkswagen sold since 1995 can be unlocked with an Arduino. It's not, not necessarily easy, but it the is possible. Of, uh, golden keys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really. Literally. Holy oh. smokes. It's an article over at Wired. Wired's been all over this, and they say it affects almost every Volkswagen for a while. Only the latest Golf-based models are in the clear.
1: Yep. Jeez Louise! Yeah, it explains a much older cryptography stuff that they did. I covered a
0: story uh, in a filter yesterday. S- somebody's using Bluetooth, able to uh, using Bluetooth in one case, and the ODB2 connection in the other case. They get into the car, they connect to the ODB2 port, and then they can they can fake the ignition into thinking it's receiving the correct key, and they can start the car. That so that was an, an unfiltered yesterday uh, this is this is a bad sign. Uh, London's Met police have missed the Windows XP escape deadline twenty seven thousand pcs still run in XP. Not too surprising though, and probably just the tip of the iceberg to tell you the truth, Alan. They say they're developing plans to address the outstanding XP desktops um, and an over- By throwing
1: them away and buying new machines. yeah I don't, they
0: say uh, a overall the number of uh, disposing of equipment cannot support win- they have to look at ones that don't even support Windows 8 one. Jeez, that's just going to be expensive. The dark side of certificate transparency. What's this about?
1: So uh, certificate transparency is this idea that we will require certificate authorities to publish a list of every certificate they issue so that uh, it'll be obvious when someone issues a fake certificate for Google or something. Or if any certificate is ever issued and is not on the transparency list, then it was uh, bad, right? So this will help force certificate authorities to behave themselves. Uh, The problem is that it means that internal information uh in certificate like uh, certificates i get for internal stuff that people aren't supposed to be able to see shows up on these public lists uh-huh. like vpn.yourdomain.com or uh, upstest2.managehr.com uh or mail.backup-technology.co.jp or uk. you know some of these i think they didn't they probably didn't want people to know that that host name exists hmm. although Relying on the fact that people don't know the hostname exists is not good security but at the same time you know that's information leakage that maybe you wouldn't want to happen uh, so they're looking at some way to maybe mask that off so that it'll tell you the domain it was issued for but maybe not the entire host name yes, I think probably a reasonable approach yeah um, you know I think people should just not have secret host names and then <gasps> the certificates yeah but fine.
0: that seems like that ship sailed. Yeah. Uh, Oh boy, I did. I didn't notice this one made in the roundup. Good one. How I hacked Imager for fun and profit. Oh, oh, all
1: right. Yeah. If you if you click through the link at Medium, it's uh, got some pictures and stuff. But uh, basically, uh, the guy. Did some Googling, basically looked at the source code for Imager and saw in the JavaScript there was some special stuff for imager-dev.com, which is the dev version of Imgur. Uh And then while Googling for that, he eventually found there was a subdomain, imager devcom <laughs> um, And it was down. But he came back a little bit later and it was up. And then he started poking around and got, uh, on that one, all the debugging stuff was on. So he saw like backtraces for the code and a bunch of stuff, and eventually submitted it over at uh, Hacker One with the bug bounty program. And, hey, uh, okay. there you go. <laughs> That's funny. The guy's name
0: Alan, huh? Hmm. Spelled differently. Yes, yes. it was. Uh, all right. Next, next story. 3D XPoint SSD pictured. Performance.
1: Yes, these are the uh, 3D CrossPoint, which is Intel and Micron's new oh, uh, nice. way of doing. Holy systems. crap! That looks yeah. like a video card. Well, these are prototype boards. Uh, there's some speculation the fan is only there to make it so you can't read the chips underneath. <laughs> uh, and there's a big sticker over one of the other chips as well. Um, but yeah, these are the new uh, NVMe based things. Although this one, interestingly, even has a 40 gigabit optic port directly on the card. Uh, yeah, it's not clear what that's going to do. Exactly. Yeah, it does. But, uh, and this one doesn't have all that much storage on it. I think they only got like uh, 48 gigabytes of uh, density on there. Um, but yeah, this is going to be their new uh, stuff uh, for performance. Uh, well, originally we were promised 3D crosspoint was going to give us like a thousand times the performance at a thousand times the mm. density for less cost or whatever. The very first prototypes coming out are ten times more IOPS at low q depths, ten times faster response times, and four times uh, the memory footprint. So you get ten times more IOPS and ten times faster times than a regular SSD, and four times more size than you can get out of RAM. Uh, but interestingly, like looking at some of these graphs here, they show the average latency of like a an SSD way up there, and then the the um, these NVMe devices are much faster. Uh, the big thing compared to the sixteen hundred gigabytes of NAND is uh, if you go back to the graph you were showing, where it shows the orange line only going up slowly. Okay. Um, in order to get the full speed out of a regular SSD, you have to be able to give it lots of commands at once so that it can run. That code on more of the, the cells, you see that orange line goes up as mm-hmm. the number of operations that you're doing concurrently goes up, yeah, whereas with the new ones at the top of that graph, you can actually see they get up to their max speed after only four or six uh, concurrent transactions. Now if you click just below that, there's a second image it's a little gallery thing. yeah so now when they switched it to from a 4x PCI Express to an 8x because you can see the line flat lines because they actually ran at a PCI bandwidth okay. With the uh, 8X uh, half height, half length card, uh, they hit the top, of, but the, um, the 200 gig one, you can see, you have to actually get up to like 14 or 16 concurrent operations before you hit the max bandwidth. Mm-hmm. Nice. Uh, but as you get a bigger, SS- if you get more flash on the card, the, because the density is higher, there's more cells and you can get it quicker. But either way, you're getting a hell of a lot more performance than you got out of the old SSD. But importantly, it gets to that number a lot faster than the uh, traditional NAND flash does. Um, So they're uh, looking to be pretty interesting. Uh, And they also have some uh, pictures of slides here from a Facebook presentation where they said, not only does the uh, 3D crosspoint give them many more IOPS, like their database gets per second uh, at 16 threads, the SSD got like, 80,000 and the NVMe here or the uh, the regular NAND NVMe uh, topped out at like 80,000, whereas the new Intel Optane SSD uh, with 3D Crosspoint is doing like 280,000 mm-hmm. uh, per second. Om nom nom And the other one is if you look at the third picture there, um, the latency, the, the 95th percentile means that like 99% of all the queries took about 1,500 microseconds on the regular NVMe. On the 3D Crosspoint ones, it's like a hundred nanoseconds, wow. or microseconds. Micro? yeah, wow. Yeah, sorry, microseconds, not nanoseconds. That'd be insane. Damn. Uh, but yeah, and uh, you know, these are just the first generation. As we get higher density and so on, they expect us to get closer and closer to those speeds we were told we would get of uh, you know a thousand times faster than current SSDs. Um, and for endurance, uh, your typical. Uh, like TLC NAND flash gives you between like less than one to maybe five drive rights per day. And your uh, more expensive MLC is giving you maybe up to 10 drive rights per day. The 3D cross point is starting out uh, with a warranty for 25 drive rights per day. Meaning you can overwrite the entire device 25 times a day for five years and it won't wear out. Damn. Uh, And that's actually part of the reason you get more speed is it doesn't have to do as much work in software to like do wear leveling because every chip lasts so much longer. Oh,
0: ah, that right. makes sense.
1: And, uh, yeah.
0: Isn't this an interesting area of Intel? Like one of their most, one of the most interesting areas that Intel's working on right now.
1: Yeah. Uh, well this is a partnership between Intel and Micron because Micron makes the actual flash stuff, but yeah. Oh, okay. Um, and Intel's making the controller side of it. Mm hmm. Um, and apparently an ASIC that's actually what's under the fan there in the picture. Uh, but what's interesting is that they're uh, running into PCI bus lamp bandwidth sure, problems, sure, right? Sure, yeah. Um, and so uh, they're also looking forward to doing the NV DIMS where when you're connected via a memory channel that has a lot more bandwidth than your PCI bus, uh, you can get uh, even crazier speeds.
0: Huh. I wonder when we'll find out more on what's underneath that fan. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll have links, too, if you guys want to check that out, of course, in the roundup. So this next story is something that might be interesting to those of you who are familiar with the secure enclave in the iPhone. Yep. And this is uh, uh, one of the presentations from Black Hat, and it's
1: uh, demystifying the enclave processor. Uh, something tells me Apple didn't participate in this. Yep. Uh, these are people these doing like, reverse engineering to find and figure out how that like, My Touch ID stuff works.
0: Yeah. Uh they talk about how the i5 uh, the iPhone five S was a technological milestone, the first sixty-four-bit phone, touch ID, M7 Motion coprocessor, security coprocessor, fingerprint data, and cryptographic keys install uh, stored in the uh, secure enclave.
1: Yeah, and they kind of try to figure out how some of it works.
0: So they talk about how uh the enclave has a soc in it to prevent the main processor from getting direct access to sensitive data. It's used to support a number of different uh services in the o- in the OS, most notably Touch ID. It runs its own operating system, S-E-P-O-S, SepOS, includes its own kernel, driver, services, and applications. Holy shoot, that's amazing. Very little public information on the secure enclave. The patent only provides a high-level overview. And they have a lot of questions about it still, but uh, that sounds super fascinating. Hardware design, the boot process, they really, it has a dedicated ARM 7 processor in it. It appears to be running at 300 to 400 megahertz. <laughs> Holy crap. Holy crap. Anti-tamper on newer chips have been added in A7, A8, and A9. Dedicated I.O. lines for GPIO, SPI, and UART, and I2C. That's with a memory controller, secure mailbox used to transfer data between cores, external random access memory has RAM, a dedicated boot ROM, an inline AES to encrypt external RAM. Holy crap. They were really clever when they built this thing. I'd love to but know also how that came to be. secretive. <laughs> yeah, wow. Interesting to see somebody actually get in there and break it down. I had no idea how detailed that thing was. Huh. I'm reading right now about the RAM. This is, really, this is really pretty impressive. All right. Well, we'll have the PDF if you guys want to check it out. Google Cloud allows customers to
1: use their own generated keys. What's this yes. about? Uh, so Google Compute Engine, which is basically Google's version of, like, Amazon AWS and yeah, so on. sure. Uh, will allow you – currently they encrypt everything in it with their key – but you can actually generate your own key and, and encrypt your data separately with your own key. Hmm. Although if the key exists in the cloud engine, I don't know that it actually provides all that much more sh- security. But, but so in theory, maybe. though,
0: they're they're using your key, though. That's yeah, that's they should offer that for everything. That'd be amazing. Yep. Uh, okay, let's talk about speaking of Google, zeroing in on deceptive software installations from the Google Security
1: Blog. Yeah. So Google's, you remember Google's Safe Browsing thing that's built into Firefox and Chrome and and will basically block websites that are known to serve malware. Sure. Uh, Well, they've also started blocking unwanted software. So when you download something and and by installing it, it's going to install a bunch of junk as well. Um, And they found that they're seeing users getting three times as much unwanted software as malware. Hmm. So while viruses are a plague of the internet, it turns out that ad crapware is actually worse by a factor of three. Uh, Yeah, Uh, and I guess... you go to install Adobe Flash and it wants to give you a McAfee. You can try to install Java and it wants to give you the Yahoo toolbar or before it was the Ask toolbar or whatever. But you know, they had some screenshots and here's like, crazy things. If you scroll down to that screenshot there, I don't know what it is app you're installing there, uh, but if you read yep, just the one you were looking at, uh, that one, if you read the description there, it's like, by installing this software, you will also install... Was it like uh, free versions of Plus HD, Plus HD
0: ViewPick, Geek Buddy, One System Care, GameBot, Kick Blaster, K and CTR, and Ad
1: Blocker Premium? Yeah, it's like literally you're installing one thing and it's installing all that crapware for you. Yeah, that is awful. Uh, Software so bundling is the worst. Uh, fighting against this and also ad injectors. Although their big pet peeve is people uh, virus scanners and legitimate programs, but also crapware on the internet installing rogue plugins into Chrome. And screwing up people's browsing experience and making them think Chrome sucks when it wasn't Chrome's fault. That your virus scanner, you know, installed a plug that slows down your Chrome or whatever, right? This will be good, too. This will be
0: really good. This will help a lot of people. Um, and it will probably make Chrome a little bit safer on Windows. It will make Windows a little safer by using Chrome, perhaps. You do, you do have to maybe stop and go, is there an incentive for Google to perhaps take out some of the more egregious advertisers out there? Because they do run a rather large advertising business so you do have to consider there could be some but i don't i does not sound like that's the primary motive and it sounds like this is great for users so it's a win win mm-hmm. for everybody yep. a win for googs and a wins for the end users okay so this one uh, sounds like bad news all the way around uh there's a
1: sex toy out there that phones home every time you use it i guess they're building a yeah, little profile so- uh, it uses Bluetooth or something, right? So you have the toy and you're playing with it, and you control it from your smartphone. <laughs> of course, but your why smartphone is a connection to the internet and is also streaming back all the settings you're using and information like how long you use it for. And uh, I think even just the temperature. The, of the combination
0: device. of vibes that you use. Uh, yeah, the
1: the the overall so
0: power level. All what of gets that. you
1: off, basically? The device's uh, temperature every minute. They want to you know make the next one do it even better. <laughs> Yeah, but boy, that's a data collection that's rather interesting. Uh, That's something to think about there. Uh, Well, when they send telemetry, like, the device's temperature, it's like, are they just making sure it's not overheating or are they actually trying to tell something else? Like, how sensitive is their thermometer? Are they measuring the temperature of the components, like the motor that's doing vibrating? Yeah. And just making sure that it's not going to burn you or (laughs) – yeah. So
0: I – they have, of course, uh, they have a response on the Fusion article about the, uh, their privacy policy and the safety and security of their customers is the utmost yeah, how, importance. How they good say. Do you
1: think their computer security is over there at the uh, oh, uh, We
0: WeVibe. We vibe. They say, by the way, the reason for collecting CPU temperature data is purely for hardware diagnostic purposes. Right. It's only collected when the it's only collected when the app is in use, which is the only time you'd be using it.
1: Yeah. Yes. Uh, you, it's Obviously, it's not going to waste your data when you're not using the vibrator.
0: But Our policy does not disclose that we may collect data, and we are currently in the process of
1: reviewing our privacy and data collection policy. And just effort. people read those giant 20-page privacy policies. It's pretty awesome.
0: Uh, all right. So how about ransomware on your thermostat, Alan? Huh?
1: Huh? That's an interesting. Uh, especially in the summer. You know, in the winter, if you turn off the heat, I can, I can get an extra blanket. But in the Boy, summer, if you turn off the air conditioning, I'm going to die. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, I mean. <laughs> you suck. Pay one Bitcoin to get control back. Yeah, isn't that funny? It says that <laughs> on the
0: thermostat. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, this was obviously something that was showing off at DEF CON. My Nest thermostat has been locked by ransomware. It's demanding 324 hours or I'll it'll lock the temperature at 99 degrees. Hashtag <laughs> complaints from the future.
1: <laughs> um. Flash and so, Chrome. We want to talk yes. about Flash and Chrome? Uh, so it seems like it could be big. When Chrome 55 comes out this December, it will make HTML5 the default experience except for sites which only support Flash. Yay! So Flash will basically be disabled with click to activate uh, in Chrome 55 and forward. Uh, Very nice. They've already started rolling out uh, a thing that kills Flash in the background. Uh, specific yeah. Flash that's actually invisible and is just being used for uh, tracking cookies or other malicious things uh, so they're killing off all that Flash and then if it's actually you know a Flash game or a video or something you click and it starts working uh, and it keeps all the other crap in the background uh, from running but they're going to switch everything uh, so basically the browser will lie and say you don't support Flash um, to try to get the site to give you the HTML5 version and then if that doesn't work the user can click a thing and reload the page with Flash mm-hmm. and it'll remember that you authorized Flash for that website and, and let it work from then on so it's not going to be Oh,
0: good, because otherwise we'd have jblive.tv
1: people complaining all the time. Uh, yes, uh, I'll have a plugin update for you that will allow HTML5 streaming in Chrome and Firefox without Flash. It works, it's just not as reliable as the Flash one, so I don't want to change the default yet. Yeah. Because it just causes more complaining, but it does work. Um I look forward to micro, to Chrome making
0: that big change and' interested to see if other browser makers I know like I Firefox, Firefox yeah. had it but I'm looking system. now I'm looking at Microsoft and Apple. I mean Apple doesn't even ship flash with their whole system by default, right. but once and you Microsoft have it
1: installed, it's whole hog. Microsoft switched to doing it like Chrome where they bundle it right I think so I'm not a huge edge user
0: <laughs> uh, but speaking uh, of, speaking uh, of yeah. yeah Microsoft is to say disa- is. Disa- is disabling RC4, Internet Explorer 11, and Edge. What is RC4? Now? It's
1: one of the crypto algorithms for SSL. Oh, okay. It's the old one that we all hope died of. Yeah, on. okay. But then it came back because it was uh, less CPU power, and it was the only way to defend... If you're using SSL v3, it was the only one that wasn't vulnerable to another attack of some kind. Mm-hmm. I recall uh, that. But now people can brute force it in like a day. <laughs> and so... IE is finally killing it off.
0: Seems reasonable. I have no complaints. A government-backed study finds that privacy fight uh, is a low priority for Canadian rights holders. Yeah, piracy fights, right? Like getting in fights. Yeah.
1: So that seems like good for... uh, Canadian companies aren't that worried about their stuff being pirated and and don't want to... Do like in the U.S.
0: That seems like a a, a win for Canadian consumers uh, and a another middle finger from Canada to the U.S. To be
1: <laughs> well, yes. you know, uh, in Canada, most times the people be perfectly happy to pay you know the eight dollar a month subscription or whatever to watch the stuff. It's just that the bloody Americans won't even sell it to us. Yeah, the big outrage right now is the new uh, CBS
0: All Online All Access to watch Star Trek. Yeah, Star Trek is going to have.
1: It will only be
0: available on Bell Canada. Star Trek CBS Online, though, is going to have like uh, twenty minutes of ads per episode. What? Yeah, it's gonna be like a. It's gonna be I twenty it's
1: free, maybe. But
0: no, no, you pay for CBS All Access. Yeah. If I'm paying for it, why am I getting twenty minutes of commercials? This is why. This is you can almost you could predict what's going to happen. Everybody's going
1: to pirate it, and it's then it's everywhere else in the world except for the U.S. and Canada. Yeah. This Star Trek will, available, will be available yeah. on Netflix yeah. without advertisements. It's it's going to fail because
0: nobody will subscribe with ads, and then the show won't be financially sustainable, and yeah. Netflix go. will buy it and air it everywhere without the restriction. That'd that would area. be awesome. That would be awesome. Uh, let's talk. Why not end the roundup with a Microsoft Office security
1: flaw? Something right out of word. What's which one was one? actually found by the Canadian government. Hey, there you go. Speaking of Canadians. Well, uh, actually, it was the – Ministry of Public Security in Quebec or whatever. Okay, but, but yeah, uh, two remote code execution flaws in Microsoft Office. Um, so if you open a .doc file that has uh, that exploits this flaw, it will run whatever code the person who made up the doc file wanted. So they actually have a, an example I think at the bottom there. If you're running Windows and click that, uh, I think. I don't, I, I, didn't actually, I don't have Office on this computer, so I didn't try it. Yeah, it almost but, makes uh, me wish I did. Always, I think the the, exa- the canonical example is just firing up Calculator. Yeah. Uh, so you open a Word doc, and all of a sudden Calculator starts running, and you're like, what the hell? Uh, importantly, this one takes uh, advantage of a memory corruption flaw in Microsoft Office and doesn't use macros or anything.
0: Mm. Uh, so, you can have macros yep. disabled and still get it.
1: Yeah, you have macros disabled, whatever, and you open this dot- <laughs> .doc, uh, someone mails you, and boom, you're infected. Yeah. Affects all versions of Microsoft Office all the way back to 2007. Probably affects before that, but they don't support those anymore. Jeez
0: Louise. And I saw a story on Krebs, too, about there's a security patch out for Windows that basically affects all versions of Windows, so you combine these two things, and it's it's patching for the Linux users, it's patching for the Windows users, it's patched, patch, patch, everybody. Yep. And we're going to need to patch the cash registers at all the
1: restaurants <laughs> and hotels.
0: <laughs> well, Alan, that does bring us to the end of this week's uh almost record setting show no not really well maybe it's record setting in some ways but i don't know which ways those would be <laughs> we'd love to have you watch next episode live go over to jblive.tv for that we stream live at uh 4 p.m. eastern which is 2000 utc yeah that's that's the magic you go to jupiterbroadcasting.com com
1: in your time zone
0: oh 1 p.m. pacific thanks uh, and you can get all the converted the calendar page, watch it live at jblive.tv, listen to it live at jblive.fm, or follow the at Jupiter Signal account we tweet when we go live to, which is nice too when we do early shows or double recordings. Yep. And then really though, the easiest would be just subscribe to the RSS and get the downloaded version, nice, short, and ready to go, all edited together for you. And uh, if you want the exact opposite of that, we have the full live stream, which is also a pretty fun experience, posted for our patrons at patreon.com slash today. All right, thanks for tuning in this week's episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week.